Would you pray with me this morning? Father, would you give us... Would you give us your um, wisdom this morning? It's been a weird week, Lord, in the world. Just weird. And, uh, boy, I sure don't know how you, how anyone could not, not be terrified if they're not a, a Christian. But I know with you that we have peace, Lord, and thank you for that. That whatever weirdness stuff that we're seeing and experiencing, that you are on the throne, you have not fallen off, and you are in control. And would you, would you illuminate our lives today and our path in Jesus' name? Amen. I think this is like our 15th week in Romans 9. (laughs) But you know, wherever you are, there you are when you're going through the Bible chapter by chapter. And man, it was just fascinating this week as I I read these words that Paul said in verse 1 when he said, that I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, that uh, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I, uh, that I myself was cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, verse 5, and from them, this is so amazing, is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. In verse 6, he says, It's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, he's hearkening back to Genesis 25, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father, Isaac. And yet, before the twins were born... Or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. And he quotes Malachi 1, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's the kind of passage that I would love to skip. It's no fun. It doesn't sound good in a billboard. Like I can't make a good sermon series out of it. It's uncomfortable because it doesn't fit my theology. So we should skip it. No, I'm just kidding. The, whenever you come to a passage, sometimes it's a, you know, like this one. You just put it on a bookshelf because you can come back to it. But sometimes you look at a passage like that and think, man, Lord, what on earth are you saying? What is it that you're trying to communicate with that kind of a thing? Because that's the New Testament. You know, and, and there are some that would take that uh, to an extreme. You've seen them with sandwich boards. In fact, I think there was one, uh, Mo, outside of one of your artist concerts this weekend, you know, that return, you know, Turner Burn, you know, people with the sandwich boards and the, and the uh, uh, what are those things, bullhorns. Um, 
And those guys are no fun. If nothing else, because bullhorns are really annoying. Can we just agree as a, as a society that we should not have bullhorns for any reason, particularly outside of concerts? So people can take it to the extremes. But what is it that the Lord would really be saying here? And you might have seen it in the news this week, or you might not have. You might have just heard the news about a group of people that were holed up inside of the walls of a building, and they were surrounded by people that wanted them dead, and they were firing on them, they were shouting at them, and they were cursing them, and roaming and, and, and breaking through the walls, and raised their flag, and some people were killed, and some were taken off captive, and you might be thinking that I'm talking about the Libyan consulate, or the Tunisian embassy or the one in Cairo or any one of the dozens around the world that have been under siege this week. But I'm actually not. I'm talking about Solomon's temple in 586 B.C. They were holed up inside because King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi, and his men were laying siege to Jerusalem. And this time, it wasn't going very well for Israel. Nebuchadnezzar's men were firing on them, killing them, murdering them. They burned their buildings and destroyed and desecrated the temple. Their king, there was a guy named Zedekiah who was the king, and you might remember the story, is a testament to how cruel Nebuchadnezzar was. The last thing, so Zedekiah was trying to escape, and he got about as far as the Jordan River before he was overtaken. They brought him back, and the last thing that Zedekiah was able to see were his five sons being executed. Now, it wasn't the last thing he saw because he was going to be killed. It was the last thing that he saw because... They gouged his eyes out, put him in chains, and carried him back to Babylon. And the city of Jerusalem, the nation, lay in ruins. And it's in that context that Psalm 137 was written when it says, And there we sat by the rivers of Babylon, and we wept. We had hung up our harps. There was no more singing. So as we go on to say that they, they told us to sing of your Lord. It was a taunt from the Babylonians. Music was a huge part of the Jewish culture. And they were told to sing these songs of victory. And the guy that wrote this passage, like, how can we sing of those things? How do we possibly sing that? And all the while, there was a group of people, while their city was being ransacked, while they were being murdered and their families torn apart and Imagine somebody coming into our area and destroying our houses and carrying us off into captivity. And there was a group of people, a race of people that stood by. And it says that they shouted, and it refers to it in Psalm 137, to tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to the foundations. The Edomites were mocking them. Mobs of them cursing and throwing things and saying, tear it down and... It's, it's recorded by Josephus, I think it's which one it was, that said that they actually said to them to throw, you know, throw their babies against the stones. And they were just harsh and awful, which helps you even understand when you see a passage like the end of Psalm 137, when the writer of this psalm says that about 
us throwing their babies against the stone. You read that and think, man, that's a weird thing to put in the scripture. But it's them just echoing and sort of uh, mocking what they had said to them. But it was a group called the Edomites. And it was something that was happening then that was a pure hatred. It didn't start in 586 BC. It actually started in Genesis 25 when Rebecca was pregnant with twins. I know Michelle has uh, done that. Anybody else had tw- given birth to twins around here? So you've been to this rodeo. It says that she thought there's a war going on inside of me. What is happening? I've never been pregnant, so I can't really relate. But I've, you know, I've eaten food, like I've eaten a lot of curry, and that seemed to really cause some a war inside of me, if you know what I'm saying. Collateral damage. But this was bad enough, sorry about that, Shannon, so that, that Rebecca was like, God, what on earth is going on? And it says in verse 21 of Genesis 25 that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. And the babies jostled each other <laughs> within their that's like jousting or what that means. And said, uh, she said, why is this happening to me? And so she went in to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, here's your problem. You got two nations in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. I believe the King James actually refers to this, throwing the yoke off of the older. Now, this idea, this moment in this womb would be what Ezekiel would refer to in chapter 38 as the everlasting hatred, the olam ibah, for the Hebrew scholars among us, of which incidentally I am not one of. The everlasting hatred. And you see this, it's this sort of an enigma, but you see it throughout the scriptures. When Israel got out of Egypt, the first place, one of the first places they come to, they needed to get through, was a country called Edom. And they asked for passage. Can we get through here safely? And Edom said, no, 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 no. And that's in Numbers 20. And God said, look, don't battle them because they're your brothers. They went around. It caused in, in enormous suffering for Israel as they had to go around this land. It was Haman who was an Edomite. In the book of Esther, remember that? He wanted to exterminate all of the Jewish people. Every one of them. And the list goes on. It was Saul that fought the Edomites and David who would defeat them. Throughout the scriptures, there is one group of people, one nation, that God had more bad to say about than any other group. In fact, he'd go so far as to give Obadiah a whole book about it. It was the Edomites. Now see if you can smell what I'm stepping in. It was a few thousand years later. Israel had actually been returned to their land. The temple had been rebuilt. Down to the southeast were the 
Edomites. But they had been, if, you see, if you've got your little Bible maps, I know a lot of you guys spend an enormous amount of time on your Bible maps. But if you've seen it, it probably shows Edom as southeast, sort of like Murfreesboro would be to us. But there was a time where a nation called, uh, the, uh, the people called the Nabataeans, they rose up and they pushed uh, Edom over and coincidentally right at the perfect time because Israel had just left behind this awesome spread of land with established trade routes, with better resources, and it was southwest, which was by King Nebuchadnezzar's standards apparently okay. He didn't raise that part of it. He left that okay. And so they moved to the west, and at that point they established their, themselves as a nation called the Idumeans. Idumean is the Latin word or Greek word for Edom. So when you see Idumean or you see Edom in the scriptures, they're the same place. So follow me on this. They move to the southwest. They're now the Idumeans, and they are basically in charge of, have taken over and conquered Israel. By the way, this will be germane. And if you're not a history person, absolutely feel free to take a nap, and I'll wake you up when it's back to your turn. The Idumeans were in charge now until a guy named uh, Judah Maccabee rises up. And you guys are familiar with Hanukkah, not just because of the Adam Sandler song, but because there's actually a holiday called Hanukkah. It was actually born out of this when Judah Maccabee rises up, gets together warriors, and they overthrow the Idumeans. This would usher in an area, area called the Hasmonean reign that in just a couple hundred years later, I'm trying to get my timelines right. Give me a little bit of latitude on this because I, uh, I haven't had enough coffee. Until around 40 B.C., somewhere in that area where a guy named Hyrcanus comes along. And the Idumeans have taken over again. And at this point, Hyrcanus says, oh, no, no, no more of this. I'm taking over. And this time when he takes over, he overthrows the Idumeans. But what he does, which is different than ever before, is he says, if you're an Idumean, if you're an Edomite, I'm going to let you live, but you have to convert to Judaism. And so what we end up with is a group of people called the Idumeans who were Jewish, but not by uh, bloodline, but by uh, religion. They practiced it. They were forced into it. It's why it is never a good idea for a government to be in charge of religion. Whether it's Christian religion, look how, look how well that worked out for us, right? Be careful what you ask for. You might just get it. But they took over, they put these guys in charge. And here why this, this is why this is germane. Four or five hundred years before Jesus stepped foot on the earth, the Idumeans, the Edomites, the sworn enemies of Jehovah had been in Israel. Now Rome comes in, they open up a can of whoop Israel, and they take over. And they set in charge a guy named Antipater. Aren't you glad that your mama didn't call you that? Antipater. That was 47 B.C. Antipater, if you're a Rome guy, you're like, oh, they all look the same to me. So he gives Antipater, he makes him ruler, and he is an Idumean. Practices Judaism as far as these guys know, but what do you know? They're just a family squabble as far as he's concerned. Ten years later, they would set up another guy in charge, 37 B.C., named Herod. He was Antipater's son, and Herod would be in charge of Jerusalem and that whole part of the country. 
Rome, when they would conquer a place, by the way, they would leave their customs in place and set up governors and things that they would basically oversee and rule over them, but it sort of, they felt allowed it to be, you know, more hospitable. I don't know what they were thinking. But now you've got Herod in charge. Herod is a family name, by the way, not a dude's name. So when you get to Herod, who would then try to kill every male child in all of Israel under two years old, you would see a Herod who would cut off the head of John the Baptist. There was a Herod, I think it's Acts 12, that killed James, the brother of John. Edomites, the whole way through, the sworn enemy of Jehovah, doing what they're supposed to do. This went on until about A.D. 70, when Rome, uh, the, the Israelites, there was some turmoil between uh, the Zealots and the Idumeans and the, the, uh, the, you know, uh, the Israelites. They were all sort of in turmoil. And at that point, Rome comes in and says, you know, we're done with this. And you're familiar with AD 70. They burned the temple, you know, blamed it on them and caused a huge, you know, ruckus. At that point, it was a little confusing because there were some Idumeans who fought on behalf of Israel and some who bought, fought against Israel. But there would be 30 or 40,000 of them that were imprisoned Idumeans who were then let go by Julius Caesar to allow to resettle in the land again after they had defeated Israel that time. This lasted until 132 AD, when again there's an uprising and Israel is doing their thing, and Hadrian in Rome is like, you know what, I've had about enough of this. And he comes in and he destroys the place flat, carries Jewish people off into captivity again, murders tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And leaves behind nothing. He says, if you're uh, in any sort of Jewish history at all, Shabbat, the Sabbath, all those traditions, if you do any of that, the Torah, you're, it is punishable by death. And he leaves in charge in this place. The, the people that are left, for the most part, are Idumeans who are now left to settle this new land. And at that point, Hadrian was, the Romans were going to set up a name of this place that would be insulting to Israel. They had a couple of choices. Would we go with Idumea or would we go with Philistia? It would be like someone coming in here in America, taking us over and naming it Iraqistan. Like just, we're going to, we want to do the, the worst possible name. We can insult you with the people that hate you. We want to name it that. And interestingly enough, they didn't choose Idumea. Because they didn't understand, again, it felt like a family squabble. They thought, hey, this will be way more insulting. We're going to call it Philistia. Or what we know it by the Latin word is Palestina or Palestine. There was no Palestinian people before that. It was Palestine wasn't even a place. It was called that by Rome to insult uh, Israel, to insult the Jewish people, to ensure they would never return again. This is a long span of history that I have just unloaded on you. This is time to wake up if you're not the history guy. Because the question is, what are you talking about, Darren? What do you mean? The Olam Iba, the everlasting hatred that Ezekiel would write about, exists until this day. When I look at what's happening across the globe, I see this. It's crazy. I mean, a dude, it's like I made a movie. Like I got my iPhone out, I made a movie, I put it on the internet, and they go burn stuff down. 
I also don't understand, by the way, you college fans, when you win and you go burn like a couch in the street. Like, I don't understand that either. But they're angry. And it's way, way past the dude in the movie. It's way deeper than that because it's an eternal hatred that is, for me, I don't understand it. And there's a reason I don't understand it. Because it's demonic. It's satanic. It's from the beginning of this Rebecca thing that this would be put in motion in a way that is quite literally ununderstandable for me. Thanks, Tim. Until I look back and see that this enigma of this thing that when I look back over the history from the moment in Rebecca's womb all the way to the time of Christ, I can see why God would say in Malachi 1 that it, well, he wasn't being arbitrary or capricious when he said that Esau hated. Esau and his people were the sworn enemies of Jehovah because it would be through the bloodline of these people. Starting at Eve in the garden... All the way through Sarah, Rebecca, the Messiah would come. That Christ would come. I don't know if you ever do that, but I look at sometimes at this prophecy thing and think, oh my gosh, seriously, Lord, why do you make it so weird? You know, why is it the creepy dudes on TBN that, that get into this? You know what? Why is it that I don't understand any of this? And I think that it's pretty simple. Satan is not omnipresent, he's not omniscient. He can't be everywhere. He doesn't know either. You don't think he's not watching TBN trying to figure it out? Got Hal Lindsey dialed up on the internet going, I don't know. You know. Read all the left behind movies or the books and <laughs> the whole series. I can imagine they've got a boardroom somewhere with like whiteboards everywhere going, okay, Kirk Cameron's going to be here. We're going to know. He doesn't know. Because if he did, he could thwart it. And it says, I think it's 1 Corinthians or maybe 2nd, where it says, uh, had they have known, they would have never, he would have never crucified the Lord of glory. The most surprised entity in the entire universe on the day that Jesus rose again from the dead was El Diablo. Crap. Well, that didn't work. So to the time of Christ, if we could wipe out the Jewish people, we wipe out the line of Jesus from the time since Christ, Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm, going to, I'm coming back from Basra. I'm going to come from that way. Basra, by the way, the capital of Edom. And I'm going to set up shop in Israel, Jerusalem. Literally, not metaphorically. That's what he said. If he can destroy the Jewish people today, there is no city to come back to. There are 25 navies amassed right now in the Gulf, right outside of Iran. Because Netanyahu has got his finger on the trigger, and it's a hair trigger. If he can nuke Israel, there is no Jerusalem for Jesus to come back to. Now, I, look, I'm not a future guy. I don't know. I'm not Harold Camping. I don't have a date or an hour for you. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you because you'd make fun of me. And you should, incidentally. I always find that fascinating. The, uh, the guys that go the date and the hour, like I know the day, because 
Like, did Jesus not say that? Like, I, got, I know which day it won't be. It would be the day that Harold Camping said, because he said we wouldn't know. <laughs> but he does say we'd know the seasons. And in Thessalonians, Paul would write to them and say, you don't have to be surprised like a thief in the night. Remember that whole thief in the night? Did you guys grow up in the air? We did the thief in the night movie. Scared the crap out of me. I got saved like every time. They popped out the guillotines and like, <laughs> guillotines for crying out loud. I lived in Nebraska. I didn't even know that was an option. You remember that? They fell in the bucket and the head just kind of bounced. I'm like... I don't know any of that. I know this, that Jesus said, I will return. That Satan has hated him from the beginning of mankind. Has set forth a plan to try to thwart this. The Alamiba. And I think as a church, the real question is, okay, there's 25 navies parked out front of the Gulf. Now what do we do? Do we get guns and bumper stickers and build bunkers and stuff? Do we get on National Geographic preppers? And what, what, do we, what does a Christian do at that point? I, I think that Jesus tells us what we get to do in Luke chapter 4. Jesus had just come on the scene. There's still a little bit of a mystery as to what this guy was about and what he was doing. And it says that he was in the temple, and so he, he basically opens up his deal with, well, this is basically his, uh, if, you want a, if you want a mission statement, Andy Stanley people, here's what it is. He says this. He's, he opens up, and he would open up to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 61, and he would read these words in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 18, is upon me because he has anointed me to preach, to proclaim, some versions, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you... Go to Isaiah and read that. It's verbatim. And what is fascinating is when he says the Lord's favor and sits down and says this day is this prophecy, he stopped mid-sentence. There's a comma there that would go on to say, and the Lord's vengeance, the Lord's anger. He goes on, the prophecy of judgment. I believe he stopped there because that prophecy was not fulfilled in that day. The part is, we are in, is before the comma. We live before the comma. We're believers. It is not our job to go to Iran ourselves and and do it. We have a military, and some of you guys serve in there. Absolutely, your job, go and serve your country well. But what do we do if you're a, it's just me. I'm just Darren. I'm a lover, not a fighter. (laughs) What do I do? That's why my wife married me. (sighs) What do we do? I think that we can look at the book of Romans and Paul gives us a little bit of a game plan. And if you're a note taker, I'd ask you to maybe write this stuff down. I'd ask you to pray about it. I'd ask you to chew on it. I'd ask you to do what 
I ask you to do every week. Go to the scriptures like the, like the people at Berea in Acts 17. And search the scriptures and see if it's true what I'm saying. I, by the way, I used to think it with the hard part was going and searching the scriptures. What I didn't realize was really what's hard is the first part of that sentence. Is to do it with a mind that is searching, that with a mind that is ready to hear, a mind that is open to the scriptures, open to be corrected, open. Because I, I got a lot of opinions. That's the hardest part for me, maybe not for you. But in the scriptures, when I look at what Paul is doing in Romans, I think he gives us our game plan. And number one is to prepare. No, not prepare. Go buy your generator and your stuff. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that. We have disasters in this country. We, you know, that's what Andrew and Glenda are going. The whole purpose of Hope Force and what we're doing with them is people who didn't, weren't prepared. We get a chance to love on them, but it's not bad for that. I'm just saying if that's your plan, man, are you going to, it's going to suck. Prepare what Paul says in Romans 9, 30-ish. Is that what I said? Is... He talked about that we could receive salvation through faith, righteousness through faith. The Jewish brothers and sisters, man, they were working their butts off for salvation. For us, preparation means to be saved, to, to literally to dive into what his word for us says and to accept and to receive. And it also involves a transferring of your papers. Whose side am I on? Am I on Israel's side? Am I on America's side? I mean, who, you know, whose side am I on? The bummer about the world is we want it to be about the good guy versus the bad guy. Sometimes it's the bad guy versus the bad guy. Now what do we do? That's where the U.S., we get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. Because we end up like funding guys like Osama, Saddam. We financed Saddam. Are you kidding me? We did it with a straight face. Because we didn't know. That's what governments do. That's why the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. Peter would actually write of a passage so that you and I are a holy nation. Set forth, called to proclaim. My paperwork is not in America. I'm not anti-American. I'm not any of that. I'm saying that I am pro-Jesus. Whose side am I on? I'm on the Lord's side. That's the only side we should be on because he's the guy that will be standing John Wayne style when this thing is over. It's also the side we should be on because we get to be on that side. When I step into this thing where I accept Jesus and I follow him as a disciple and and, uh, by faith I receive this thing, this love that he had for me throughout the millennia, that he would do everything he did, then I'm a part of his nation. That's where my paperwork is. If there was a passport for that, that is where we should have it from. And in the meantime, Paul would say to you and to I, occupy until he comes. Prepare. Make sure that yeah, your life is right with the Lord. Now, not in one of those, okay, i got to rededicate my life in case the rapture happens. And Like literally, just Jesus is alive. I mean, are you kidding me? That's awesome. And to allow that salvation, that righteousness through him to embed in your hearts. The next thing we get to do is pray. Paul would say in Romans 10, 1-ish, that it's my prayer for the people of Jerusalem, my Israeli brothers and sisters, that they would be saved. 
We get to pray for, and it's funny, just a few verses later in chapter 10, it actually says, Paul says, on the account of the gospel, Israel is your enemy. Interesting. And he said it because they were cutting their heads off and stuff. You know, Herod was still running rampant, and there was all kinds of crazy stuff. And every town he went to, they beat the poo out of him. They're your enemy on that account, but not in the eyes of the Lord. We get to pray for Jerusalem. We get to pray, Psalm 122, 7 says, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. I wish I had time to get into it, but I do not believe that replacement theology is accurate. I'm going to take it a step further. I think it is damnable. The promise that he made, it's the whole purpose of Romans 9 through 11, is to say, hey, I made a promise to Abraham. It was non-negotiable. I'm keeping it. And if I cannot count on him keeping his word to Abraham, how on earth could I count on him keeping his promise to me? If you want to make a bumper sticker, if it's true for the Jew, it's true for you. We should pray for them, but we should also pray for our Arab brothers and sisters. This day and age, there is a people that are the, I believe, the Edomites. Psalm 88 talks about a confederacy of nations that would come in and... The, the media uses a term called Arab. It's it best in imprecise. Because, you know, in Egypt, they're like the descendants of Ham. Uh, Libya is Put, which is the descendants of Ham's son. And but they all have one thing in common. Islam. We must pray for them. We get to pray for them because they're not the enemy. They're hostages. And what kind of war do you shoot the hostages? Spiritually, we need to pray for them. We don't need to freak out. We don't need to panic. We just need to pray for them. And then we get to proclaim to them the good news of Christ. There is a world out there right now between Tehran and Tel Aviv is one of the most dangerous corridors on the planet right now. And it is filled with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is filled with people being held hostage by a prophet that is no prophet at all. You can visit the grave of Mohammed and he's still there Go visit the tomb in Jerusalem of Jesus, and it's empty because he's gone. He is alive today. They need to know the freedom of that. And I wanted to share with you this uh, video because it's amazing of what's happening in the Muslim world right now. Jesus through dreams and visions, and it's a growing phenomenon in the Islamic world. Julie Stahl has the testimonies of several men who say Jesus supernaturally appeared to them and changed their lives forever. Take a look. The phenomenon of these dreams and visions has spread throughout the Muslim world from Indonesia to Morocco and beyond. Several years ago, 
Ali went on the Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. Of course, when I went to Mecca, I was going there in order to pay homage to the Kaaba and to fulfill the requirements in Islam. Ali's experience in Mecca is dramatized in this DVD called More Than Dreams. But that night, I saw Jesus in a dream. First, Jesus touched my forehead with his finger. And after touching me, he said, you belong to me. And then he touched me above my heart. You have been saved. Follow me. You belong to me, he said. So I decided, okay, I'm not going to finish the Hajj, the pilgrimage. Whatever it takes, I'm going to follow that voice. In addition to Ali's story, the DVD tells of other Muslims who came to faith in Jesus through a dream or vision. We're seeing that all around. We're hearing about people that have never even thought about Jesus as Savior. They're content Muslims and they're having dreams over and over. Tom Doyle serves in E3 Ministries. He and his wife Joanna take the gospel to the Muslim world. Tom also wrote the upcoming book, Dreams and Visions, Is Jesus Awakening the Muslim World? I think our God is a fair God. He's righteous and just. When people are seeking, they don't know where to go. Maybe they don't have a Bible. Maybe there's no missionary in the village. He'll get the message to him somehow. This woman comes from a Central Asian country. Her identity is hidden for security reasons. In the church, if you ask how many people, how people came to Christ, 80% will say they saw him in a dream. A Christian friend challenged this woman to ask God to speak to her personally. So I decided to, to ask him. And so I did. And then um, the next day, I guess, I saw a dream and I saw in my dream, I saw Jesus was a bridge. I decided to come to him. Hey guys, my name is Hazem. Hazem Farage, host of a satellite TV program, hears from Muslims about their dreams and visions. I had one lady write me and said I had had a nightmare. And she said, I turned on the television and there you were. And she said, and the words that were coming out of your mouth were so peaceful, I fell asleep. And she said, and when I fell asleep, I ended up having a vision of Jesus. She said, I saw the Lord. She wasn't a believer. She said, I saw the Lord Jesus. And he was in a, in a bright white robe. He pointed and pointed to a man who I knew in the dream was Abraham. And he was sacrificing Isaac. And she said, as soon as I looked over, I had known that Jesus was the Christ sacrificed, the Son of God. Doyle says the dream or vision is usually the start, not the end of a Muslim's conversion. You know, nobody goes to sleep, Chris, a, a Muslim and wakes up a Christian, but it knocks down the false barriers that are inherent in Islam. A couple of them are that we worship three gods that the Bible's corrupted. The Doyles say compared to the political storm sweeping the Middle East, this could be seen as a spiritual earthquake. You know what, as things heat up politically and spiritually within Islam, man, the Holy Spirit's moving even more powerfully. This is the time when hearts are open, people are desperate, governments are changing, everybody's foundation has massive cracks in it, and Jesus is the answer that can come in and fill that need. Many veteran missionaries say these dreams and visions combined with satellite television are reaching Muslims in unprecedented numbers. They say more Muslims are coming to Jesus than at any other time in the 1,400-year history of Islam. The Doyles say believers in the West can join this spirit revolution. So yes, I think that, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And, um, you know, we are committed, all of us as believers, we've got to reach those with the gospel of Christ.
Not everybody's going to go to the Middle East, but they can pray. And no government, no leader can block intercession around the world. That's one thing that can get into any country. So we need to pray as believers that God would continue to just push the gospel out to the ends of the earth. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. The biggest growing religion, if you want to call it that, in the world is not Islam. It is Christianity. It is bursting at the seams because that is happening all over the world. And we don't know about it because it ain't going to be on CNN. I've heard people ask, and, oh, God, why do you not work miracles like you used to? Oh, he does. If you ever want to see a miracle, need one. You get into these places and declare that Allah is not God but Jehovah is. It's kind of handy to have somebody get out of a wheelchair. The miracles in that thing, it says that these signs will follow those who believe. If you're following signs and wonders, you've got it backwards. The last thing that I see Paul say to us, to what he was doing, giving us a game plan, living before the comma, in the proclaim the gospel, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me to liberty and those things that he's done. But he would, in Romans 15, talk about providing for those that are in need. When you look at Matthew 25, the least of these brothers of mine passage, we tend to, I tend to sort of give it this blanket meaning. And I think that that's fine. I think that that is uh, part of God's heartbeat. But in the context of what he's talking about, Matthew 24, it says, Lord, tell us what will be the signs of your return. How will we know? And he begins to talk about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes. And you can cross-reference it with the news. And it was in that context that he would go on and say, you'll be thrown in prison. You'll be beaten. You'll be hated. So doesn't it make sense when he says that you visited me when I was in prison? That you fed me. You clothed me. We ought to be as believers absolutely ready to go to provide for the least of these brothers of mine. And I would say as a church that it is still my prayer and my hope that we can find a ministry or two in that corridor that we can get behind and support and help. We've spent lots of money with Majid El Shafi. If you've been around, you've seen him. And he goes in and has been rescuing families out these mothers and uh, fathers with their children out of places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and getting them out. But I would love to be, and I would ask you to pray for us to find that ministry that on the other side, that we can be ready to provide, to visit those who are in prison, to feed them, to clothe them, to love on them. I, I can't think of a more important ministry for a church than that. Our brothers and sisters in Christ need us. And in America, we start talking about this and people go to sleep. It's kind of freaky. It's uncomfortable. And it ought not to be. It doesn't have to be. If anything, that's part of our Jesus' thing. We get to show his love to our brothers and sisters there. Let me tell you this. Some of the best evangelists are guys that used to kill Christians. Ask Paul. getting the gospel into their hands. And I mean the gospel that transforms and changes lives. We get to proclaim it. We ought to be praying for them daily. Have you prayed for them this week? I don't say that as a bondage or a heavy thing, but as a, hey, maybe that'd be something that would be helpful. 
They can keep some of us out. They can keep YouTube out, but they can't keep our prayers out. I've heard it said, I think it might have been Angela's father-in-law, that if, you can get into any nation in the world as long as you're not concerned about how you're getting home. It's Paul. Paul would say in Romans 14, I'm going to bring this gift to the Jerusalem saints who are being persecuted who were being tortured, who were in famine. I'm going to bring this gift that would provide for these saints who were suffering. He'd write about it again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This gift that he was bringing for them. And he prayed in Romans 14, pray that I'll get out alive, he said. Pray that I'll be able to get this gift to them and get out alive. That's Romans 15. As a church, I would hope for us to be and the worship team, if you want to come back so we can worship a couple minutes more. I would hope it's all to be like the men of Issachar in First Chronicles 12.32. It's just given off this sort of all these uh, you know, nations in Israel, all the, the, uh, the armies. And it says, and then there were the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what to do. I pray that we could be like the men of Issachar. That we could understand the times we live in and know what to do. To pray. To be prepared. To proclaim and Provide. I know that's very Baptist, the four Ps. Apologize for that. It's just the way it came out. I don't want it to discredit the importance of what it really is, which is we, all right, we have an opportunity, church, to be the church, to be a part of this. Of all the times you talk about when Jesus talks about his return, never do you hear him say, everybody surround the wagons and dig a hole and go live underground. No, he just says, be working. Be about your father's business, that you might be found working when I return. His father's business is love. He's in that business. And I tell you, gang, we have the number one anecdote to Orthodox Islam on the planet. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our God isn't angry. He said, I hated, past tense, Esau. That hatred was satisfied on the cross. His anger was absorbed for them at that point. His anger for you was absorbed. Because God is serious. Like, he doesn't just wink and nod at you. Oh, boys will be boys, you know. Sin is dangerous. It's serious. It's awful. And he doesn't approach it with a wink and a nod. He approaches it with outstretched arms and hands that now have holes in them. Because the wages of sin is death and he cast your check. If you've not received that gift, man, I hope you will take time this morning and do that. I'd be glad to pray with you. I'm right here. My wife is right here. If you're with somebody you came with, maybe pray with them to receive by faith that free gift of salvation. But I hope that you'll pray for Jerusalem. I hope you'll pray for our enemies. That they might all come to the knowledge of Christ. I don't know what's going to happen. I I don't with Iran or I don't know any of that but I know Jesus and he said that I'm going to return and it's going to be okay I got this one so instead of being panicked and freaking out we can just be at peace and say okay I'm going to pray for him I'm going to provide I'm going to proclaim Father would you let those words sink into our hearts this morning and as a church give us wisdom as individuals give us direction as brothers and sisters in Christ may you give us a vision of you, the reality of who you are. You are alive just as you said and you love us and you love Palestinians and you love Iranians and you love Russians 
You love all of us. Lord, could you download some of that love into me? I'm living before the comma. You got everything else in your control. I know my, know my role. Let us all know our role before the comma. In Jesus' name, amen.